Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Uh, I'm your host, Marius Smith, manager of the centre. I'm Eleanor Jenkin, policy manager at the Caston Centre. And today our special guest is Claire Spivakovsky of the Monash University Faculty of Arts. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for having me. Um, so today uh, we're talking about a report on the education of uh, children with disability in Victorian schools, a report that the Casson Centre, uh, in conjunction with Claire from the Faculty of Arts, released at the end of June this year. Uh, the report uh, looked at uh, how kids with a disability are educated in the mainstream government uh, school system in Victoria, uh, particularly uh, looking at how uh, that education measured up to Victoria's human rights and anti-discrimination legislation. So uh, I want to open this discussion uh, by um, asking you, Eleanor, what prompted the Caston Centre's interest in this issue and what were the aims of the project? So there were a couple of things that piqued our interest. Uh, the first was that we were hearing from colleagues working in the disability sector um, about challenges that were facing kids with disability and about the really, really tough time that families were having um, securing the proper supports that their kids needed to get a real education in a lot of schools. Um, and we were really hearing a lot of these stories, so we started to think that it might be worth investigating what was behind that. Um, the second thing that made it an interesting process to embark on was the timing. So from a policy perspective, um, it's always helpful to look at an issue when the time's ripe. And, of course, it's an election year in Victoria, which, of course, um, makes it a lot easier to get the attention and buy-in of some of the key government actors. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on now. And this has actually been an 18-month project, so the, the timing wasn't a coincidence, but uh, it was good that it, uh, it did happen to coincide with the second half of an election year. Um, Claire, you led the empirical research component. Uh, can you tell us about uh, how you did the research? Sure. So um, part of the project, we really wanted to understand, you know, what do things look like on the ground? Like, how is it that people actually experience um, this thing that we call inclusive education within mainstream government schools? And so I ended up speaking to uh, just shy of 100 um different individuals that are involved in that in some way. When I say different individuals, I mean I spoke to parents of students with disability, uh, to teachers, to principals, to education support staff. Um, I also spoke to a range of young people with disability who were able to reflect on their previous experiences. Um, but I also then spoke to other individuals and organisations that are often working from the sidelines to make inclusive education happen within these sorts of spaces. So people like disability advocates, also teachers advocates, um, but also those organisations that are focused specifically on the needs of uh, students with disability, um, both within and outside of the classroom, and who are giving quite significant amounts of support and advice to both schools and uh, to parents as well. Uh, and 
we're um, law people. We don't really like talking to humans, and this doesn't <laughs> make it any more appealing. We just spoke to almost 100 people. But um, there is a sort of a bit of a real push in the law faculty to try and get people, you know, us crossing over and, and actually talking to people doing empirical research. Uh, in this particular case, what worked and what were your kind of limitations? Sure. So I think... Um, I'll talk first about the the limitations in that, as with any kind Spoken of... Spoken like um, a true academic. I'll lead with <laughs> yes, what that's I... that's right. What was no good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> essentially, the, the limitations with this project is the same with almost any piece of qualitative empirical research, which is that we're not aiming for a representative sample. So um, if I wanted to actually get a representative, generalisable idea of what was happening in Victorian government schools, then there were thousands and thousands of people that I needed to speak to. So I didn't do that. That is uh, unbelievably uh, close to impossible to actually achieve, it's certainly within an 18-month period. Um, and that's not really what our goal was either. So in that sense, um, the limitations are we don't necessarily have a, a represent, full representation of what's going on, but what we do have instead and what the real value within qualitative research and qualitative empirical research is that you get insights into exactly what is taking place for key individuals and you get very rich ideas of how that actually occurs for those individuals as they speak about uh, their lives, their experiences, the sorts of conversations that they've had and it gives individuals uh, a bit of freedom to talk about the things that affect them um, in a way that you might not anticipate if you were just going to survey people on whether they think it was good or bad or whether or not they have or have not spoken to a particular individual. Having said that, um, the only other thing to keep in mind with this uh, project, uh, and again this is true for all qualitative sort of empirical research, is it tends to be that the people that actually want to talk to you, because this is always voluntary um, and it's always done by you know sort of going out and explaining what a project is, is that usually the people that want to talk to you either have had extremely positive experiences of whatever it is you're looking at or extremely negative experiences of whatever it is and that's why they want to share their voice. Um, can I yeah. ask, in this case, uh, was it more of the former or the latter? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, definitely far more um, negative experiences. There was only yeah. really a handful of individuals that wanted to speak um, because they had had such a positive experience of it. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, we uh, targeted a small group of schools to speak to principals and teachers that are known as yeah. designated inclusive schools, so yes. schools that are... Meant to be, to be more inclusive, yeah. yeah doing yeah. things better. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so that's kind of uh, that's kind of the background to it. But what did what did you actually find? I mean, there's a range of different findings, and um, I'm only really going to speak about, I, I guess, the the one main thing that that really caught my attention and I think speaks to the complexity of the issue that we're dealing with here, which is that ultimately what the interviews showed me is that students with disability are far too often carrying the full brunt of a highly sort of problematic approach to inclusive education within mainstream government schools. And that that actually happens for a range of different reasons, which often intersect in quite complex ways. Um, so, for example, to stop talking about it so abstract, 
exactly. I think it's often commonly understood that there's sort of insufficient funding um, and that this is a key factor contributing to the exclusion of students with disability within mainstream government schools. Um, and this is something that we identified in our report. It's also something which has been identified in several other reports that have been conducted into this sort of space as well. But what also sort of came out from the interviews that I conducted was just how complicated this particular issue of funding actually is. So it's not just that there is a lack of funds uh, going towards the sort of support of inclusive education within mainstream government schools, but it's about how those that sort of funding dynamic plays out. So, for example, quite a number of uh, parents that I spoke to, as well as other organisations and advocates, spoke to me about the way that, um, in essence, a lot of parents are being encouraged by various organisations or by other parents to, um, I guess, game the system a little bit. So to create a situation where their child has been deprived of sleep or is otherwise having a particular bad day so that when they're assessed to determine what level of funding they should receive, they're in fact having s sort of the worst possible outcomes for that report and that that can then lead lead to greater funding outcomes for that individual child. Now that's problematic within and of itself, but really the reason why I say these things are complicated is because what then often was happening is that uh, parents who had gone down that pathway, as well as parents who just otherwise were having um, very negative reports written about their children, then got into a situation where schools were saying, okay, that, that means that your child is entitled to quite significant amount of funding that will come to the school, but in essence that funding uh, should be going to the school and not specifically to your child, and, and the school gets a chance to determine how that gets distributed. And because that child is seen as being so difficult to reform or so difficult to work with, uh, essentially schools almost give up on that individual and reinvest that funding elsewhere. And that's then another sort of layer to this problematic funding issue. So I guess a lot of what we were finding, and that played out for other things as well, is just the, the sort of multiple layers by which this does and does not work. Mm. Um, on the funding front, in the last week or two, um, we've had word from... Uh, the Victorian government in the media that uh, they are piloting a new funding model that looks at um, ability, the kids' abilities, focuses on what they can do rather than their disability, which would hopefully discourage that kind of approach. It's really early. We don't have any more information than that. We're kind of hopeful that that's a step in the right direction in Victoria. Yeah, I, and look, I absolutely think that the proposed funding model... Um, from what we know, which is not an awful lot at this point, seems to have an, a lot going for it. Um, but I think there were a couple of other themes that came up in our research that show the same really complex features that Claire was describing with the funding issue. Um, and one of them is adjustments and curriculum modifications. We really found that a lot of the time... Um, teaching staff, classroom staff are not sure how to modify curricula. They're not really sure what um, adjustments should be made or support should be in, put in place to help a student. And that links really closely with the problems that Claire was talking about, about the funding model. Um, it links to bigger workplace 
you know, workforce capacity issues, um, and it links to really low expectations for some of these kids. So, you know, we had some absolutely devastating stories about children um, often on the autism spectrum, um, but other kids with intellectual disability um, and various other things being given, you know, some truly soul-destroyingly pointless tasks to complete at school mm. while their peers were learning. Mm. Like, uh, was there something about building a mm. fort out of isopole sticks during yes. history class? Yep. Yeah, that's right. And that's in high school as well. Yeah. 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 And so this, you know, these are just cases of where funding, is that is that part of the answer? Mm. Absolutely. But it's one piece of a much bigger puzzle. Yeah, one another story that's, that stood out to me that I've thought about a lot was one of a parent who had a kid uh, who I think might have um, had autism and she'd coached him using just different teaching methods to, um, I think him, to do the NAPLAN test in grade three and he got good results. Then his school approached the mum in grade five to get her to withdraw him from the NAPLAN testing so that their school's marks wouldn't be um, brought down. So there was two things there. A school just like trying to protect its reputation by pulling a kid out of NAPLAN and the kid was really stressed. But the other is obviously there were ways to teach this child to get a really great education uh, and the school wasn't able or willing to do it. I think that also illustrates another theme that came up a lot in the research, which was one of really pernicious forms of exclusion. Um, I think it's it's clear that um, socially and within the education system there is an acceptance now of the idea that children with disability um, should, for the most part, be educated in the same classroom as their uh, peers who don't have disability. But that's not actually the full um, summary or the full experience of what inclusion really means and so what we found is that kids are still being excluded in these really pernicious ways and it was things like um, being moved to different parts of the classroom, being put in the alcove where the bags are kept, um, being put at a table facing the wall on the other side of the room Um, then a lot of social exclusion so having a child eat lunch on their own for example, which of course you know makes it almost impossible for that kid to build real friendships and have positive interactions with their peers, um, and so this theme of exclusion again, exclusion from testing, um, when it wasn't necessarily the desire of that student or their parents for them to be excluded, um, these sorts of things seem to happen quite a lot. Yeah, and I think. Uh there's there's plenty of evidence that that kind of exclusion leads to worse behaviour, yeah. which leads to the need in very common for further exclusion. Okay, so that's kind of the main things that we found in the report. So, Eleanor, um, there, the what are the kind of what are the main causes that's leading to this kind of stuff? Right. So there were there were sort of three intermediate causes that we identified, um, and then one overarching theme that I'll come to in a second. But the three. Um, really, you know, key things that we found were firstly a real over-reliance on school-level leaders. Um, So pretty much everyone that Claire spoke to um, when asked what made the difference, right, what made this school particularly good at inclusion or particularly bad at it, pretty much everyone said the principal Mm. or the leading teacher. It was 
often pointing to an individual within that school. Um, now, one level, it's fantastic to hear that there are so many school leaders out there doing a great job at this. But what we also found speaking to people was that it makes it really contingent. If that principal leaves, um, if the leading teacher, you know, moves to another school, then these things can kind of just fall apart. And so you get a lot of the gains made in developing an inclusive culture that, that can fall apart. Um, the second thing is that it leads to real patchiness across schools. So you can have a handful of schools that have a great reputation that become magnet schools for pe for kids with disability because they're doing a good job and next door you know the other school down the road um is engaging in all sorts of discriminatory practices and and the difference is how committed and how informed and how skillful that those school leaders are so that was one thing uh, can i butt in there too um so obviously that leads to too many kids going to too few schools because mm. they have a good reputation, which can lead to that school actually not doing a great job. But there was also this other kind of, I don't know if you recall this, but just a sort of a, almost an implication that a good school is one that is embraces kids with a disability, but it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily doing a great job at educating the kids. They're just no. open to trying, which probably brings us to something you're going to talk in a minute, Eleanor, about sort of the support that they're getting from schools, all schools are getting from up the chain. Yeah, and so that, that does bring us to another thing that we found that was, was pretty eye-opening, was the disconnect between school-level policies and department policies. And so you had a, a huge gap between what the department was working on um, and would really hold up as being fantastic policies that have been reviewed, that have been, um, you know, thought through, that read brilliantly, and what was actually going on at the school level. Um, and that takes us to the real kicker in all of this, which is a really troubling lack of monitoring and accountability. Um, and I think the best way to illustrate this and the most eye-opening thing was we posed the, the question pretty directly to the department. How do you know if a school is doing the right thing? So how do you know that a school is fulfilling its legal and policy obligations to its students with disability? And what are the processes in place to make sure that they're doing that? And the response that we got was look at um, an internal process called FISO, and look at the four-yearly um, Victorian Registration and Qualification Authorities Review, right? And you think, oh, that sounds pretty good. Which every school goes through. Which every school goes yep. through. Which sounds pretty good, except that FISO is an entirely self-assessed process, right? And the VRQA process is based on a set of minimum standards which do not mention disability. In fact, the FISO process doesn't even mention disability. So you have the department saying that the main mechanisms that are in place to make sure schools are doing the right thing do not mention disability. Um, I don't think that most people in the community would be awfully satisfied with that situation. Um, and so what we found that sort of tied a lot of this stuff together was the fact that schools are really left to their own devices. Um, the department, for the most part, doesn't really proactively monitor what's going on. And 
when they do become aware that there are systemic failures, there really aren't many mechanisms in place to change that no, they, set of affairs. I think we found they more try to deal with the individual uh, complaint right. in ways that we probably uh, we we didn't focus on the complaints process, right. but we certainly had concerns about that. Yep. There's no there was really no mechanism to learn the systemic lessons that might arise from these complaints and and put them in place. Yep. And, and, and a lot of this comes down to, it's not even a policy per se, it's more of an ideological orientation towards what's known as devolution. And this is the idea that if you increase school autonomy, um, then a school can be more responsive to its community, more responsive to its student body. And you know what? In, a, in an awful lot of ways, maybe it can. There's... an awful lot of disagreement about whether devolution is a good thing or a bad thing generally for educational outcomes. Um, What I think we've found and been able to demonstrate pretty compellingly in this report is that when you devolve all responsibility to the school itself, um, you really place vulnerable students at a real disadvantage and at real risk of having their rights violated. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, and I think this is this was our aha moment really as we were getting pulling this report together. That this just uh, it's sort of this is something that goes back certainly to the Howard era federally and the Kennedy era in Victoria, but that has really become so powerfully embedded in education policy as such. Like it's just the overarching thing that we don't interfere in how schools are run, and I think there's a real fear of it politically. And what we saw was we can't talk about the policy overall but as far as the education of kids with disability this is definitely doing harm and it's uh, there is definitely there's no question there's a lot of good stuff that the Victorian government is trying to put in place on disability and mm. you alluded to the fact that you know policies for example and their best practice and that but all of it could come to nothing or not much because they're refusing to, to do two things. One, to hold schools accountable and the other, to help them out. Yeah, and look, to give you an example of how this um, plays out and the extent to which the um, the obsession, dare I say, with school autonomy um, actually really undermines a lot of these positive initiatives, it's worth looking at the issue of gatekeeping, right? So gatekeeping is the practice of um, denying enrolment to a student um, on the basis of their disability. And generally, this isn't a formal thing. This is not a a parent submitting paperwork to the local school for their child. This is a a family going in to meet with a principal um, to discuss their child's needs before they enrol them and being discouraged from enrolling. And it you know, it often looks like someone saying, Oh, we don't we, we can't take another kid with your child's needs. We can't really give them what they need. Maybe you should look elsewhere. And what we found was that this was a really prevalent occurrence. About um, 15% of um, the parents that Claire spoke to had had some sort of gatekeeping experience. And we know that this has been going on for years because there was a report released in 2012 called Held Back by the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission that said exactly the same thing. So the department's been on notice for a long time that this is a problem. But it's hard to respond to, right? Because you're not looking at formal paperwork. This is going on informally. So it occurred to us that one way of addressing this would be to proactively monitor enrolment data. And the thinking goes like this. If you have two 
two schools in a suburb, two primary schools in a suburb, you know from the demographics that you would expect ballpark, you know, X percent of kids at a primary school to have a disability, right? And you know that one of these schools has half that number of kids and the other one seems to have more than their fair share, right? So that becomes a red flag and you follow up with the schools, you know, what's going on, what's happening that means that we've got this discrepancy, what needs to be done to make sure that kids can enrol and that you can support them properly. Um, we've made that recommendation, but it was communicated to us that the department was very uncomfortable with the prospect of having to take such a, um, a proactive direct involvement in the way that schools manage themselves. Now, it's hard to escape the conclusion that until there is a willingness to put mechanisms in place that protect kids' rights, having a nice enrolment policy that says that you can't deny enrolment on the basis of disability isn't really going to be enough. Yeah. Uh, also with gatekeeping, the other part of that is trying to force kids out. And interestingly, after this report was released, um, the, I spoke to someone from a specialist school, so a school that deals specifically with kids with disability in a regional area who said, you know, they get calls pretty much weekly from various schools near saying hey we've got this kid you know they're struggling a bit we really think they'd be better with you we're going to send them across and and this person was saying it's just they shouldn't be in our school this is not what should be happening we're just being used as a dumping ground mm -hmm. um which is also something that you could monitor through data because absolutely yeah. absolutely retention mm -hmm. rates yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah it's not hard no. So on that on that topic of schools, Claire. So you approached a number of schools to better understand their perspectives. Um, how forthcoming were they, and what did you learn from yeah. that? Sure. So uh, as we sort of said at the start, um, I actually approached fourteen schools originally that had been identified in one way or another as being more inclusive than others. So either the department thought that they were more inclusive or um, parents had formed different Facebook groups often and had identified particular schools as being more inclusive than others. Um, and as we said before, often that just actually meant that they allowed a child to enrol in their school rather than turning them away. Um, and of that 14 schools, only six actually wanted to participate in the research at all. Um, and when I say participate, I actually mean that only six principals agreed to speak with me. And then of those six, only two allowed me to speak to any of their other kind of staff. Um, and so what that meant is that obviously in part that's a limitation of the study because it means that we have very limited amount of individuals from school that we could speak with. I think that's also quite telling. I mean if this is the set of um, schools that are meant to be more inclusive than any other within the state when it comes to mainstream government schools and they're not necessarily willing to talk about their practices to participate in this kind of research or if they are they're explicitly not comfortable with me going and speaking to their teachers about what actually happens on the ground rather than what is the principal's line on how things work 
I think that that at least raises a lot of concerns about what's not necessarily happening in those schools, but but what might be happening in in all of those other schools that aren't even identified as inclusive if we already have this level of gatekeeping happening at this kind of school as well. Great. Um, Eleanor, excuse me, how how receptive was was the Department of Education um, to this report? So I think it's important to point out that the department um, was very cooperative um, throughout the the life of this research. When we embarked on the research, or when you embarked on the research before my time at the Caston mm-hmm. Centre... Yeah, and um, uh, shout out to Adam Fletcher, who was the other person key to this report, who yes. did the first stage of our three-stage process. Yep. Um, so during that period of time, the department um, committed to... Um, facilitating some of Claire's introductions to to some of the schools. They committed to um, working with us to refine and consider the recommendations that we made. And, you know, they they were very helpful in terms of meeting us, um, providing information about various initiatives which were going on in the department and whatnot, um, which was really very much appreciated. Um, Since the publication of the report, the department has acknowledged the report. Um, they, We had sent them a letter um, sort of formally including the report and they, they responded to thank us. Um, what we'd really love to see from the department is a more detailed response that sets out their reaction to each of the recommendations we've made Um, and in particular to identify which recommendations they intend to implement and which ones they intend not to implement and and, and why. Um, We've asked for that. It hasn't yet been forthcoming, Mm. so time will tell. It's Yeah, so we're recording this on the 20th of August. I think I only sent the letter in response to their letter a week or so ago, asking for detailed responses to recommendations. So if we get any news, we will definitely publicise that through our uh, various channels. Um, One other thing on that, uh, I I, I do want to acknowledge not only did the um, department support this research from the outset, but we actually approached them basically with, in typical lawyer fashion, a desk-based research project, and they were the ones who suggested that we should go uh, into schools to actually interview people, which led to a mad scramble to find someone, and that someone was Claire. So last question for you, Eleanor. Um, What are the next steps that we want to take from here? Right. Well, I think the the first point to make... um, and this may be not the best place to make it, but I'll do it anyway, <laughs> is simply that all of this takes place in a really, really dynamic policy environment, which is kind of a nerdy way of saying that the department's doing an awful lot at the moment. Um, they actually have a, a heap of really fantastic initiatives which they're rolling out. There's The current Victorian government has committed um, a lot more money to the cause than... Um, than previous governments have, and that is being used in some um, really innovative ways within the department. Obviously, it will take time to see the results of those initiatives, and I'm very much hoping that there will be more monitoring of the impact of those initiatives and more transparency about that than there has traditionally been. Um, But 
I think that the, the key point that I want to make at this point is just that without the accountability processes that we talk about, without the monitoring and accountability to make sure the right thing's being done, you know, we're really concerned that the benefit of those initiatives will be lost, that the opportunity will be wasted. Um, and so this is a very long-winded way of saying that the next step for us in this project itself is in trying to push as much as possible for those more systemic changes um, so that we can really derive the benefit from this you know, new push to improve practices in this area. More broadly than that, um, certainly the Caston Centre has every intention of continuing to work on disability-related issues. What that looks like, we're not really sure at this point. Um, there's any number of interesting, exciting, important topics to be worked on, including looking at the way NDIS is rolled out, um, looking at other features of the educational experience of kids with disability. So it's a case of watch this space. <laughs> Please do. Um, we've actually, we did send a report off also to education ministers in other states and territories. We've already had a couple of actually quite promising responses from there too. Okay, um, that's all for the disability report. Uh, one item of human rights news that I want to mention. Uh, today, as I say, 20th of August, a, co a coalition of some of Australia's biggest humanitarian and human rights organisations have given the federal government a deadline to get all of asylum seekers and refugee children off Nauru, according to The, the Guardian today. Um, World Vision has released a number of photos and profiles of very young kids on Nauru. They're very powerful, and I was pleased to see some of them featured on the front page of Sydney's tabloid, The Daily Telly, today, which suggested there might be a broad movement in support of this. Um, so you can follow along with that with the hashtag KidsOffNauru um, on Twitter, where you'll also find suggestions for how you can help. And finally... Um, it's time for my favourite segment where we name our human rights hero or villain of the week. Eleanor, who you got? Look, I'm going to go super unoriginal, but mm. I feel as though this one can't be let to pass, and that's Kofi Annan, yeah. a former UN Secretary-General who um, has passed away in the last few days. And he is... I'm nominating him as both a hero oh, yeah. and a villain. <laughs> I was interested to see where you like. Yeah, yeah. There. So he's a complex one. Um, so on the hero side, during his time as Secretary General, um, you know, he had a he got a few wins under his belt. Um, the Millennium Development Goals came along during his time. Um, in a lot of ways, he elevated the importance of human rights within the UN system, and he also really can be credited with improving the bureaucratic and diplomatic functioning of the UN. It was in a real crisis of legitimacy prior to his term and um, he did an awful lot to resolve that. Um, and in later life, he played a really important role as a mediator um, brokering peace around the world, including, um, including in Kenya during my time there after the election violence. So um, he did an awful lot of good. The flip side of that is that he had a few notable failures. Um, he was head of peacekeeping at the UN when the Rwanda genocide took place and the Srebrenica massacre um, and was really personally responsible for um, denying additional support 
um, and taking a more activist approach in those settings. And he also came under a bit of heat in later times for really quite famously tolerating sexual exploitation by peacekeepers um, and bureaucrats within his own department. Uh, And that has not gone down well as time has passed. So a mixed bag there. Really persistent. Oh, totally persistent. Yeah, still an issue now. Mm. Um, So he's a mixed bag. Oh, I like it. Um, I I support all of that. (laughs) Claire? Uh, So I don't necessarily have a a individual hero. For me, really, I speak more as a collective in terms of the hero for me at the moment is is all of the parents and also the disability advocates that worked with parents to continuously fight for their children's rights within uh, mainstream education systems. Uh, I mean, what was really striking for me in, in doing most of the interviews that I did was how often parents were not being heard or sort of uh, put on the back foot or otherwise just being ignored. And so the fact that they repeatedly fight for their child's rights, that they have to do that is sad, but that they continue to do it uh, and to do it in, in such difficult conditions. I think is also to be commended. I'm really struck by the number of parents I've spoken to since the report was released who, who I've often known in different contexts who say, oh, I've got a kid with a disability, and then they go on to talk about all the things they do to get their mm. kid a good education. That And it's amazing what they do. It's also heartbreaking that they have to yes. devote so much of their life to doing what should be done automatically. Okay, my hero is um, Beruz Bushani, the Kurdish uh, journalist who's been in prison on Manus Island for more than five years. Um, he's very recently released a um, a book uh, that's re- received rave reviews um, documenting his attempt to reach Australia and then the psycholo- psychological anguish of spending so much time um, basically being imprisoned in limbo by the Australian government. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but I've ordered it. Um, I'd recommend you do the same and that you should follow him on Twitter, uh, just first name, last name, B-E-H-R-O-U-Z, uh, Bushani, B-O-O-C-H-A-N-I. Um, I also want to note that due to my technical incompetence, this is the second time we've recorded this episode, uh, the first was a few weeks ago, and my hero then was going to be Ethiopia's relatively new Prime Minister, um, Abiy Ahmed, who uh, has extended the olive branch to uh, of peace to its neighbour Eritrea after almost two decades of both real and cold war. So that's all. Um, I for thought us. you were going to say that we were your heroes because we fronted <laughs> up to do the podcast for Twice. a second time. I definitely owe you something. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please uh, be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others find it and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was edited by Theo Dura. 